Hey everybody, welcome to Full Metal Pod. I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy. So how has your past week been, uh, despite the, I guess, craziness going on in the world? Uh, how have you been? Uh, despite the craziness, because I feel like the craziness encompassed my whole Tuesday. But other than that, I've been binging The Big Bang Theory on HBO Max. I forgot how much I really liked that show. I am trying to remember which country it is. Maybe it's, I think it's Belarus or something, but there's a company, or a country that has a sitcom called The Theorists, and it's pretty much a direct ripoff of Big Bang Theory. And it's, I, I mean, I guess it helps if you can speak the language to understand what's going on in the show. But, but yeah, it, apparently I, they, tried to sue them over it but because the the entire news station or tv station is owned by the government they couldn't do anything about it huh that's very interesting because i know like sometimes we remake shows from other countries here in america yeah but usually you get permission so like the uh the good doctor for example that actually originated as a korean drama I don't know, uh, I think like seven years ago or something like that. Uh, pretty much the exact same plot and everything. Uh, but then I want to say Daniel Day Kim got the rights from the Korean creators, the Korean studios to make it in America. So like that's, while like, while it's a, a quote unquote ripoff, it went through the proper channels to to go through that route. Whereas... Uh, yeah, I think, I, from what I understand, they just kind of said, hey, that looks like a cool show, let's make one. Wait, Daniel Day Kim, like, lost Daniel Day Kim? Yeah, that's, if I'm not mistaken, I might be getting my actors confused, but I'm like 90% sure that I'm right about about it being Daniel Day Kim. Oh, wow, that is, that is very interesting. I did not know that. I love the first two seasons of The Good Doctor, and then I kind of fell off, but... I might, I might have to check out the Korean version of it, though. Yep, that's the uh, original. It came out... I'm trying to remember, because it, it came out like the early 2010s. I want to say, like, I don't know, maybe uh, 2014 or something. And then, yeah, and then now it's, what, 2007... 2013, I think, is when it came out in Korea, and then the 2017 American version came out, and it's, yeah, pretty much the exact same plot. Oh, interesting. Because I do, like, I know, like, The Office, there was the the British version, and then we had our own version here in America. And sometimes it's just, like, I know they're, like, the same show, but it's almost apples to oranges for me because of what you think of different the different humor types and, like, what other places consider, uh, like, other cultures. It's always interesting seeing... Uh, the same idea done by a different place. Oh yeah, that's true. Cause they'll have the exact same plot, but the story itself will pan out differently, or maybe the episodes will be different or how characters are portrayed are a bit different because of the differences in language and culture and whatnot. I'll definitely have to find a place that's uh, streaming it. I think Vicky has it. V I K I. It's a, uh, it's like a, it's actually owned by Rakuten now, but I think in the early days, it was pretty much just a community organized thing. 
Uh, so people would take episodes first, a lot of times first run episodes of like K dramas and Chinese dramas and Japanese dramas, and then translate it and uh, put it uh, dubbed, of course, or subbed, sorry, not sub dubbed. They'll sub it and put it online uh, so people could watch it. And I think now they actually have a, like a paid subscription. They have a free version, but a paid subscription and kind of a more Netflix model. But it's, if you're into like all the different Asian dramas and stuff, it's a pretty cool system. Oh, hmm. I'll have to definitely check it out. You said Vicky? Yeah, V-I-K-I. We are not sponsored by Vicky. I am going to mention that now. We actually have zero sponsors, but we are open to having them if you want to sponsor us. Yeah. I would love a a sponsor. Disney Plus, you know, sponsor us. That'd be nice. I agree. I would enjoy that very much, too. Just anybody to make it easier for us to do what we do. But yeah, that's a I don't I don't use it all the time, but there's like times where I'll just be like, you know what, I feel like watching Vicky, uh, and then I'll put on some kind of K drama or something. But I, since I do it so uh, so infrequently, it's like when I put it on, there's ten new shows, twenty new shows, whatever, and I'm like, oh, huh, I guess it has been like a year since I've logged on. I haven't watched a Korean drama in a very long time, but there. There is one that I really liked, and it was on Netflix, and it was about, like, feudal Korea, but then there were zombies, and uh, the first season was dubbed and had subtitles, I believe, but the second season has nothing. Like, it's not dubbed, and it has no subtitles, and it it was very disappointing, because I love a, a zombie show. Zombies and werewolves... If you got one or the other, I'm pretty much in. Like, I've never jumped onto the zombie bandwagon, if you will, but I am not against it either. Like, uh, I'm trying to remember the last zombie thing I watched. Maybe it was the the Zombie Land Double Tap, but you know, it's it's it still has its place. I enjoy it. Oh, the show is called The Kingdom. I just looked it up on my phone. I, oh man, I watched so many zombie things. I don't I don't know what the last. I guess I've been watching The Walking Dead a lot this uh, past past season. Uh, I kind of i it's it's run its course, I think, but I really wanted to like I I've been hooked. So you know when you have to finish mm-hmm. something, even though you're like, oh, it's not it's not as good as it used to be, but I need to see this through the end. That's how I'm feeling with The Walking Dead right now. Yeah, I feel the same way about some things, like even things that I hate, because I'm like, you know what, I'm already so invested in it, I need to see it to the end. Uh, I never, like, just just for the record, I was a, never a fan of the Twilight films. I just kept getting dragged to each one as they came out. But, like, I was already four in, and I never saw the fifth one. And I was like, I'm kind of invested now. I, I know it's a terrible film, but I kind of want to know how it ended. So that, yeah, I wound up renting it and watching it. I would say I saw the first Twilight movie. I've seen them all, disclaimer. But I saw the first one, and I listened to this podcast called How Did This Get Made? Uh, and Paul Shears is the host, and they do the Twilight movies. They just talk about bad movies, and they kind of give their review on them. And they went through the Twilight movies. And every time they would come out with a new one for the Twilight movie, I would go out and watch it. And I will say, though, the last Twilight movie has a really cool vampire-werewolf fight scene at the end. It does. 
jumping a little bit backwards when we were talking about like uh, Korean movies and stuff, I just learned about one. It's been out for a while. It's on Netflix uh, called The Call. And it's like, did you ever see the Dennis Quaid, Jim Confiezel movie from, I want to say, was it 2000 Frequency? Yes, where they like hear the dead people's voices, I believe. Or it, no, no, it's a, it's the one where like he gets his dad's old CB radio and he's able to talk to him thirty years in the past. Oh yeah, okay, I'm getting that confused with like that movie White Noise, I believe. Yeah, but yeah, like okay, yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, so this movie is called The Call, and it's a Korean drama or Korean film, and it follows the same basic idea where this girl is able on the phone in her house, able to call back 20 years in the past in the house and talk to like the previous occupant, but it has more of a sinister twist to it. Whereas it was more of a, uh, yeah, feel good, happy movie with the, uh, with frequency. This one is, um, not so much. It's more of a suspense thriller type film. So definitely would recommend the watch. Wow, man. So she calls back to the house she's in, but the owner is 20 years ago, 20 years in the past. Yeah. It's like 20 years to the minute. Oh man. See, then like, I feel like you can't really give them advice. Cause well, I guess you could help strangers. That's not that bad of a thing, but if I could call myself 20 years in the past, that'd be more helpful. Yeah. I highly recommend giving it a watch on Netflix. It is really good. I'll, I'll definitely have to check it out. I'll let you know what I think next week. Indeed. And um, while we still, well, we still have a little time before we start the podcast, I do want to mention, and since Tenet is available to rent, I would recommend people rent it, but you may want to buy it instead because you're going to have to watch it three or four times just to figure out everything that happened. I That is still on my need to watch list. I I really feel like I need to not have any distractions near me and just be in the zone watching Tenet. Yeah. Even if you're paying complete attention to the film, even when you get to the ending, you're still going to be like, what? So you're going to have to watch it again. Is it more than like the end of Inception where that top is spinning? Yeah. More of a like, what's going on? No, it's even it's even crazier than that. I mean, it deals with time travel and grandfather paradox and all that crazy stuff. So trying to figure out exactly how the world works and who is where, when and whatnot. It's just like crazy. And this is a Christopher Nolan movie, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. I'll definitely have to check it out. And it ties in with our twilight. Isn't Robert Pattinson in this movie? Yes, he is. And now I have a, like I, I always thought of Robert Pattinson as being Edward. And I was like, man, I never really gave him a fair shake because he wound up being such a good actor. And soon he'll be our he'll be Batman. Well, cool. I think on that we can just jump straight into the podcast. Yeah, I'm ready. All right, we're on season four. So yay, one more this season and one more after that. <clears throat> and I will say, so when we talked about how season two had my favorite outro music. My favorite intro song is definitely uh, in season four, period chemistry, and it is just awesome. So I am going to be enjoying these next few episodes. Uh, but we have episode, see, we have episode 40, which is Dwarf in the Flask, and episode 41, The Abyss. 
and let's talk a little bit about the first one. And the first one, we get a lot of interesting backstory, but first we see Fort Briggs, a military leader from Central is talking about how it appears that Armstrong is likely responsible for the disappearance of Raven. However, she is also too smart to leave behind any evidence, but they are pretty sure that Central will be able to figure out what happened. We see Armstrong being escorted in Central down a hallway, and she bumps into Ma- uh, she bumps into Mustang. You could definitely tell there's some kind of rivalry going on, but I think it's fair to say that that she's more invested in it than Mustang is, because Mustang is trying to be friendly, but Armstrong is being well, you know, Armstrong. She tells Mustang the Fuhrer summoned her here, and Mustang offered to meet her for dinner. She says that she can eat him into bankruptcy, and just all it just this back and forth went on for a bit. She goes on to talk to the Fuhrer. The Fuhrer wants answers about Raven. Armstrong realizes she can't hide at all, so she twists it in her favor. She asks the Fuhrer how he could involve an incompetent person like Raven. Raven came in and just spouted out all the secrets to Armstrong. Armstrong just said, you know, Raven was here. He was taught about the country's history. He talked about the Fuhrer being a monkeyless, talked about immortality and more. So then the Fuhrer asks her, well, cool. If you know all this stuff, why did you still come here when I called? And she said she came because she wants to fill the seat of Raven. The Fuhrer likes the way she played, so she gave her Raven seat, but he then took Briggs, so now Briggs is under his control. Going back to Briggs, Buccaneer is talking to a soldier, a Briggs soldier specifically, talking about how Armstrong is gone and Central has moved in. However, the one thing that Central doesn't realize is that even without their leader, Briggs soldiers act as one unit, one force. We see the cafeteria, and Mustang joins Riza for some lunch. They have a casual, you know, lunchtime work chit-chat, and Riza sees her shadow, which reminds her of pride, so she tries to find a way to inform Mustang of what she had learned without directly telling him what she had learned. So she kind of signals by tapping her cup to let him know that, okay, we're going to be talking in code right now. And she starts telling a story and starts talking about work and stuff, but she would use people's names like Scar, Elric Brothers, Havoc, etc., etc., And her plan was that the letter, the first letter of every name was a letter for the sentence. And Mustang taps his pen to acknowledge that he understands she's speaking in code. Mustang is able to piece together that she's saying Selene Bradley is a a homunculus. And Mustang just has this oh no realization. We then see father closed his eyes kind of in contemplation sitting on his throne. And we just do a quick flashback to ancient Xerxes. When we were in Xerxes, it kind of looks like uh, how I'd imagine ancient Persia or Babylon to look like just for context. We see a young man, uh, probably about the age of Edward Elric, and he is slacking off a little bit. He hears a voice coming from the void. He then realizes the voice is coming from this flask on the desk. There's like this little black ball in the flask. The voice asks him, what's his name? The slave replies, number 23. The flask asks for his actual name, not his number, to which the slave replies, I have no name. I'm a slave. The flask tells him, well, then he's nothing more than a piece of property with no rights and is traded. 
Well, we've also noticed that the slave has kind of a bandage on his arm, or he does have a bandage on his arm. And apparently an alchemist from Xerxes used the slave's blood as part of an experiment. The flask then responds that the, that experiment was actually what created him. Uh, they used the slave's blood in order to create this little black ball. The flask decides to give number 23 a name. Originally, he gives him Theophatus Bombastus, but he figured it was too complicated for him to understand. So instead, he gave him the name of Van Hohenheim. They continue to have a conversation, and the little black dot, the flask, re realizes that Hohenheim is unable to read or write since he's a lowly slave. It's not relevant to his work. And Flask asks, well, if he ever wants to be free, if he ever wants to live his life as a free man, I mean, if he doesn't, well, then really he's no different than him trapped inside the flask. Little Flask creature offers to educate him. Hohenheim asks what the creature is. The little black ball shifts his form, and he becomes very similar to the shadows of pride or like the um, the little eye you see in the gate, but it has a mouth. And he says, oh, you can call me Dwarf in the Flask Homunculus. We see a time montage pass as Hohenheim begins to learn to read, write, as well as the finer parts of alchemy. Hohenheim goes from being a slave to being an alchemist. Hohenheim says that he's grateful to the Homunculus for giving him freedom. He can now go out and enjoy life and, you know, maybe one day get married and have a family. The Homunculus tells him that it's sad that humans cannot exist unless they form communities and breed. Hohenheim says that humans live for the bonds that they form. He then asks what would make the homunculus happy. Homunculus simply says he would be happy if he could leave the flask. We jump a little further in time. The homunculus is brought before the king without Hohenheim present. And apparently the homunculus was created for the sole purpose of giving the king the answer to immortality. The king essentially begs him, do you have the answer? Because Homunculus is not really keen on answering any questions. And he eventually says, yeah, I can tell you exactly how to get to mortality. We then see a few familiar actions taking place. Men are digging what they think is an irrigation ditch around Xerxes. Then we also see slaughters taking place around random villages. So it is clear that they are, they are carving crests of blood and are trying to create a transmutation circle around the country. We then see some alchemists, Hohenheim, the king, and the homunculus present. Uh, the homunculus is obviously still in his flask, being held by Hohenheim. And if the king sits in the exact center of the transmutation circle, he will gain immortality. So he activates the transmutation circle, but then he realizes things have gone mm, not as planned. We start to see these giant tendrils come out of the ground and everybody starts to collapse in the room and they seem to be gasping for air or whatnot. Well, Hohenheim is kind of scared because he's like, hey, this isn't supposed to happen. What's going on? Well, it turns out that they aren't actually in the exact center. Well, the king isn't in the exact center, but Hohenheim and the homunculus are. This was all part of the homunculus's plan, and Hohenheim was none the wiser for it. We see them 
being broken down into like their elemental parts or whatever. And then we just see what looks like a giant eye appear from the ground of Xerxes, just the entire size of the country. And then chaos ensues, darkness envelops, and then the next thing we know, it's morning. Hohenheim wakes up, broken flask near him. He sees the bodies of the king and the other alchemists, and he calls out their name, but they're unresponsive. He starts to wander around the city a bit, and he sees everybody just lifeless and passed out. And he's wondering, man, what's what's going on? He sees somebody in royal-type robes behind him, and he realizes, oh, maybe it's the king. So he turns around, but then he notices it's not the king. The, the creature, or whatever it is, looks exactly like him. Oh, so it's real. he realizes that this person is actually the homunculus. The homunculus was able to create a body by using Hohenheim's blood that looks like Hohenheim. It's, it's more of just a, a more advanced flask, if you will. So that is why Father looks exactly like Hohenheim. Apparently, they created a transmutation circle, and they sacrificed all the souls of Xerxes to create a philosopher's stone. And right now, Hohenheim and the homunculus are physical versions of the philosopher's stone, each one having half of the population of Xerxes, about a little over uh, half a million people each. Hohenheim naturally just freaks out because he never wanted this. He doesn't know what to think of it. And of course, he can hear all the souls in his body. Hohenheim wakes up from a nightmare on while riding on the train. He runs into Azumi Curtis, who recognizes him as the Elric's father. And they have a chat. As they uh, get exit the train and they're walking around with Sig, she begins to get sick, as she has been. Hohenheim asks Sig to find a car. Hohenheim asks Zumi if she had seen the truth, and she mentioned that she did. She sacrificed her internal organs to bring her child back to life. Hohenheim sticks his hand in Azumi. At first, you think he may be harming her, but we realize that he is actually just rearranging her organs in order to ease the pain. He says that he cannot return what was taken from her, but he can make the blood flow easier so she'll be in significantly less pain, which she is. Credits roll. Post-credits scene, we hear Edward talk about how the Philosopher's Stone is able to have any form, liquid, uh, little stone that we see, uh, what's-his-face carrying, Kimley carrying. But also, as we know, it could take the form of a human, in the, this case, Hohenheim and, well, the homunculus. So we finally got an origin story for the homunculus and Hohenheim. What did you get out of this episode? So my initial thoughts of this episode were like, what the what? Like uh, the backstory to Hohenheim is bananas and I'm here for it. I loved it all. And it's great seeing more of him because what we got for of who Hohenheim was, I guess before the end of last season and the beginning of this season was very uh, a stoic, distant person that we didn't know much of. And now we're kind of seeing like he's a kinder person or he's he, he has a heart. Yeah, it definitely does paint him in a different light because up to this point, we think that he may be just, you know, nothing more than a um, 
a cold and distant father. But then we realized, oh, well, no, his, his past is a little deeper. And now we also understand why father looks exactly like him. Yes, the, that mystery is solved. Uh, I think we always knew like there was some kind of thread to both of them. It's not coincidence. They look the same. But I don't know. I'm just, I feel like this happens a lot in shows where something that's clearly treacherous or can talk or has a mind of its own that's imprisoned is left somewhere and someone's always cleaning that room and that thing kind of gets into their mind and we see it happen here. I'm like, people stop leaving these things on your desk. Yeah. And as far as we can tell, I mean, I don't think they straight up say it, but it's pretty implied that this may be one of the first homunculi ever created. And so that's kind of interesting. And I've actually just sat kind of racking my brain trying to figure out like, okay, so what, how was this homunculus created? And the best theory I could come up with was that he is actually part of the gate. Why he kind of looks like that black ooze with the eye and stuff, but they, he's got a semi physical form because they used human blood to create him. So it's like they pulled a piece of the gate out and gave it a form inside of a flask. I think that's that's like my best idea of what the homunculus is. Because they also later say that they kind of created him to get secrets of immortality. So it's like, oh, so they, they pulled a piece of the gate out to tell them knowledge or whatever. True. And it's just... I don't... I don't know. I, it's just like, you can't trust this thing. It's weird looking and it's has an attitude when it talks to people. You just can't trust this, this like my neighbor Totoro dust mite looking thing. It's, it's no good. And you're, everyone's holding it in this little flask thing. And, Oh, but it's, it, it I like getting the preview of seeing what Xerxes was before everything happened. Exactly. And I also like seeing the whole origin of Hohenheim going from slave to like, he's doing well with his life. He's gone from being a slave to being an educated alchemist. He's a free man now, everything. And then just without him knowing, all of a sudden now he has half a million souls in him and just drove him crazy. And now we're kind of getting that context about why he thinks he's a monster and everything like that. This episode had me very confused about Hohenheim. I mean, well, just for a minute, there's that scene in the very first part of this episode where, um, I, I don't know what we call it, the dwarf in the flask, Mm -hmm. but they're talking to each other. Hohenheim still doesn't have his name yet. He's just, uh, what is it? Number 23 and sweeping. And then, you know, the homunculus is talking to him and he gets like this evil look in his face. Like, Oh, I could do something with this knowledge or whatnot. And for a minute there, I'm like, Oh, he's going to be persuaded to go on this evil side. 
But watching this full episode, I feel like he was never tempted or he was never pulled to the, the evil side of this. I think he was always just kind of like a unknowing participant of what's going on. Yeah. Because the homunculus being in a flask, he had no way of getting to the exact center anyway. So he probably used Hohenheim for that unknowingly. And then also, he basically said like that making him a philosopher's stone was his way of saying thank you for giving me life since it was his blood that created him. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some truth to that. But I think it's also just a convenience thing because there's no way the flask could have gotten to the center without him. So... So just like he was convenient there holding him, so that's why. But I also feel like Hohenheim is I, I don't want to say not the smartest person, but I think out of the group of people that were in that area, you got what the Emperor and then Hohenheim's master, and I guess some another like top leaders of the country who are in, who are supposed to be in the center area. But I think he needed someone that if he was going to have to give someone immortality and this gift of becoming a philosopher's stone, I guess Hohenheim would be his best bet that it wouldn't bite him in the butt. Yeah, Hohenheim pretty much trusts him explicitly just because of, I guess, just because of the nature of their relationship. Because as he said, you know, he would still be a slave if it weren't for the education that the homunculus gave him. Yes. And, uh, I don't remember the names he was saying in like four episodes ago, but are they the same names that he was saying after he left the, like he was leaving the temple and he was calling out, I guess his friends or people. I wonder if those are the same names. I didn't go back and check. It may be. I'd have to check that out. I honestly did not think about that until right now. So yeah, I thought that was interesting because it was a, we heard a list of names in that episode. We I, we kind of thought we knew, but now it's like 100% sure that he is a Philosopher's mm-hmm. Stone. Man, so he's a living Philosopher's Stone in the form of a human. And from earlier episodes, we know that Xerxes was destroyed around 400 years prior to the start of the show. So yeah, he's definitely over 400 years old. And it's... It, we get a glimpse of, uh, I don't know if Xerxes is as big as what we're dealing with now, but we get to see like what could happen if they complete the circle and they perform all this. Yeah, Xerxes seemed to only have about a million people. I think Amestris is definitely larger than that. And now, and yeah, we now see that they're trying to do the exact same thing, but now it also asks the question, what what is he trying to create another Philosopher's Stone for? Another Philosopher's Stone that large. Like, we've seen other Philosopher's Stones that were created with, you know, maybe a dozen Ishvalans and whatnot, and they seem to be pretty powerful. Why does he need another multi-million size? Like, he has to have something greater planned. Yeah, it's just, well, he's there. So we got Father already, and then he's got his the homunculi already. And it's just, uh, I don't know. Kimberly talks about a couple episodes ago about he they want he wants to see who comes out on top. Is it going to be them or is it going to be the human race? So, are they trying to take over the world? I don't know. Maybe we do know that the homunculi that we've met so far are not like they're independent creatures, but not really. Like they seem to be 
extensions of father created from father. So maybe he needs more philosopher's stones to create more children, so to speak. Who knows? I also, I, I really like this episode. This probably, this might be one of my favorite episodes after watching it now. Because I love thinking about Hohenheim and how he's lived such a life. And I like Ed and Al are his first kids. Cause I assume they're his first kids because he doesn't really, uh, you feel like he has this emotion for them, but he doesn't really quite understand children. So yeah. So it just makes me think of like what a lot he's lived through this whole life. Why did he like, he met their, like their mother and like, what kind of bond was that for him? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I remember in one of the earlier episodes, he talks about how, you know, he's been wandering the world for several hundred years. And he just, to, you know, not drive himself crazy, he would just find joy in small things and whatnot. But it wasn't until he met Trisha that he actually fell in love and wanted to start a family. So, yeah, I guess he just gone through his whole life just not really associating with anybody closely anyway. And... And not until we met Trisha, then that's when he actually started a family and started to reevaluate things. I do wonder if, because he is an unwilling participant in all this sacrificing of people, and if that weighed on him for how how many I, we don't know how many years, but I can't imagine. Like their deaths are inside you. You can't leave them. And we all, we've seen it before. Like the souls are like still kind of bubbling in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also doesn't really like not to take it in a grim direction, but he also really has no way to stop it either. Like he can't go, you know, he's, he's effectively immortal. So he can't go like, you know, end his life or anything like that. So he's just stuck having to hear all of the, all of the wailing of the of the souls and everything and having to live with the knowledge that he's immortal because all these people were sacrificed and he he didn't ask for it like he had nothing to do with it i do like at the end of this episode him and teacher meet and i think i don't know i'm i'm just like oh are, are they getting together is like another team for me i don't think so but it's like it's interesting we see him on the move, so he must be sensing like something's happening. And it's interesting that him and Teacher are heading to the same place almost. Yeah. Because they, they're on the train together and they leave the train station because they're walking through the city together. So they must be going to a nearby place together. Probably. They they were probably heading in the same direction because it didn't look like they were they were boarding together. Like it didn't look like their plan was to travel together. They just happened to run into each other, but yeah, it seems like they might be teaming up now. It's uh oh man, it's very interesting and uh I like she gets sick and then he puts her his hand on her like back and's like you've seen the truth, haven't you? It's great that he can sense that. Yeah, who knows what the extent of his powers are with uh with him being a philosopher's stone. True, and like how much truth has he seen? Cuz think about uh now ed gave up his uh his arm did he give up his arm or his leg he gave up a limb 
and he saw so much truth. But can you imagine half a million people being sacrificed? Like, how much truth do you see with that? Like, everything, right? Probably. Like, that would probably be a fair assessment. He saw almost everything by going through that. So, I I don't know if we're, we might be waiting for him to join up with, like, his sons. But he's going to be, like, a really powerful weapon. Yeah, I mean, technically, since both of them only have half of the Philosopher's Stone, he would be on par with Father, theoretically, in terms of power. So that will be fun to watch. And now, I like, thinking about it, like, how, I, uh, I don't know, do we call him Father, or is he the dwarf in the flask? I, I think I'm just going to call him Father, and how Father was in the flask at the beginning. And now he has a body. Does that mean his body is just, like, just kind of a, a flesh body, and then he can go back to being... If we destroy that, does he go back to being, like, the dwarf in the flask? I think so. I think he actually just dies. It's what I understand might happen. Because, like... Because he can't survive on his own, so... Like, yeah, that human body is essentially just a vessel for him. My understanding, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is, like, if that body broke or whatnot, he probably would die. Uh, the question is how to destroy that body, but yeah. I, I wonder how strong he is. I guess we'll find out. Like, clearly he he's able to defeat Scar without moving a muscle, and he was able to heal uh, Ed without much power, and he was able to create metal without, human trans, uh, without the uh, equivalent exchange. So he's clearly on another level. I'm... I'm oh. I know he's like he's probably gonna be like the last fight. We're saving him, but it all this is getting me really excited. Kind of, it seems like all the backstory pieces that I didn't even know that I wanted are being filled in. So this is this is a this is a great episode. Yeah, they're just lining everything up now. Like all, all the exposition is done, so all they can do is move forward with the larger plan. Yeah, this episode was definitely like a, like a shocked face, eyes popping out of my head episode. Because we get all this backstory at Hohenheim, but then we get like Hawkeye and Mustang, secret code, finding out that Salim is a homuncula. It, everything's crazy now. Yeah, everything's just coming all together. Now Mustang has to figure out what to do with that information. And Armstrong is in Central now, so they're communicating with each. Now they can really just like sit down and talk, if they can. That's true. That's true. I mean, they'll probably find a way to do it, but they'll have to do it in secret since Mustang is a person of interest for the homunculi. Yeah, not the homunculi. Well, yeah, for the homunculi, but also for the Fuhrer and military and everything. So. If they saw him openly talking with uh, with her, they'd probably suspect her of something nefarious. I want, I hope the Armstrongs get together. Like, I want to see her and her brother. I don't know doing what, but like, I think it'd be fun to see them together. Yeah, well, I, I think inevitably we'll have to now that they're both in Central. So that's going to be a very fun thing to watch. But yeah, overall, this episode, like I said, probably one of my favorites. I I really loved it. I didn't think I was... The very first 
like minute of it, I wasn't feeling it too much. But then at the end, I'm like, this is a great episode. I agree. Definitely a great episode. And I I think I'm going to watch it again, to be honest. Just everything that happened. See if there's anything that I missed. Even though I watched it like twice already in the past day or so. I also feel like I can't watch my neighbor Totoro anymore without looking at those dust mites and being like, oh, maybe they're homunculus. Just like around. Maybe they are. Totoro is like doing some alchemy now. He is. He's binding souls. Oh, and there's like a dying mother in that movie. Too. Wow. It's like so many connections. Yes, indeed. It, the, the alchemist ties into a lot of other things, I gotta say. But yeah, it's just uh, great, like, not filler episode, great informational episode. I agree. I think we have, uh, we're moving past uh, information and moving back into action with the next episode. Ready to go? Yep. So the next episode, 41, is called The Abyss. We see pretty much we're following two teams, uh, the tunnel team and the above ground team, uh, what we remember from the previous episode as they're trying to get away from Kimberly. The tunnel team is heading down the tunnel. They come across dynamite. It's wet, so they realize it's probably going to be fine. Like, it, it couldn't explode even if they wanted to. We jump back to Edward and Miles and that team. The storm has finally passed, so Miles orders the Briggs men to take out Kimberly's men. Naturally, Edward takes exception with that idea. Miles says the careless die up in Briggs. That is kind of their rule. Showing mercy to Kimberly would ultimately get them killed. Miles and his men have a talk, and they talk a little bit about how naive Ed is, but they also kind of admire his conviction. Miles mentions that he realized it was easier to kill somebody than to let them go away and do something wrong. We jump to the tunnel and we see the team trying to translate the notes. They talk about gold and and uh, this root that's used for healing and stuff and how it might mean immortality in a person. Mei Cheng says that it must be related to Xingyi's alchemy because in Xingyi's alchemy uh, they have the Shinhito or they have that term which means the true person uh, or the golden person. And in Shingi's Alku history, that's meant to mean like a perfect being. So they realize, oh, so that must be like where the term for gold and this notes come from. And she mentions that it comes that they they originally came up with that idea because the man who introduced them to Alkestry had golden hair and eyes, and he taught them the basics of Alkestry and in, uh, in Shing. Uh, Winry mentions that it sounds like Ed and Al, you know, gold hair, gold eyes. And when they're telling the story, is we see like a, a picture of Hohenheim. So it is strongly suggested that Hohenheim is that that gold man. Uh, the team exits the tunnel, starts walking when they hear a muffled scream from Al, who is buried from snow. They dig him out and he warns them that Armstrong has left Briggs, and Central is now controlled of Briggs, and of course, now it's no longer safe. They decide that they have to find some place to hang out, like they can't just stay in the snow. 
Scar says that there's a mountain village called Azbek, which is uh, also an Ishvalan kind of refugee camp, so they could head there. Now, in order to trick Kimberly, Ed created a fake Alphonse armor, and one of the soldiers is inside pretending to be Al. Kimberly's squad is heading to the mineshaft to check. Miles decides to have snipers position near the mineshaft, because once they get down to the mineshaft, it'll only be a matter of time before they figure out what happened to the other guys or that they escaped from the mineshaft. Ed has a problem with this, so he breaks away, and he tries to stop Kimberly through words. So he goes up, and he approaches Kimberly and tells them that he should let the brig soldiers check out the tunnels instead. Kimberly realizes that since Ed is slowing him down, something must be up. Kimberly puts together that snipers are around him. And before the snipers get a chance to shoot, Kimberly causes an explosion which kicks up snow and obstructs the sniper's view. Ed tries to go after Kimberly as he makes his way down the mine, but Ed is stopped by two Chimera. The other two men that were guarding Kimberly were Chimera, a, a lion and a gorilla Chimera. The snow is obstructing the view, but of course the Chimera have strong sense of smell. So they're able to smell Ed's location. Not being able to see him is not a problem. Ed gets pushed down the mine shaft, and the Chimera come into pursuit. Ed notices some dynamite, and even though it's wet, he realizes that ammonia is one of the ingredients. And so he, he uses alchemy to revert the dynamite into ammonia gas, which the overpowering smell renders the Chimera knocked out and useless. So that just leaves Kimley and Ed to fight. Ed warns that he just wanted to talk, and Kimberly says he doesn't have the time. So Kimberly takes out his stone. He plans to use it, but then Ed attacks, knocking the stone out of his hand down the mine shaft. And Ed then scratches his palm, which has that transmutation circle tattooed on it, rendering it kind of useless. Kimberly says that it's Admiral that Ed won't kill him, but he had successfully given him a second chance to kill Ed. He then reveals that he has a second Philosopher's Stone and proceeds to blow up the mine shaft, which causes Ed to fall down along with the two Chimera, but Kimberly is fine and is able to escape. Ed realizes that he is in dire trouble as he has been impaled by some iron after falling through the shaft. Ed is slowly dying, which results as of Al's soul slowly being pulled out of his armor. So we see him just kind of collapse in the snow and everybody's wondering what's happening and he's yelling something about his body's pulling him back. Ed decides to use alchemy to free the Chimera and he says he needs them free because he can't remove the pipe from him on his own. And obviously the Chimera have take exception with it because they're like, hey, as soon as we remove this, you're going to bleed out and die. Uh, Ed says, well, I'm going to try to heal myself with my alchemy. And so what Ed decides to do is use his soul, part of his soul, uh, to be a, like a very mini, uh, very, very small Philosopher's Stone and use it to heal himself after, as soon as they pull out the metal. As they pull out, Ed is naturally in a lot of pain, and he's just playing it over in his mind, reminding himself that he is a single soul philosopher's stone and to use the alchemy to seal his wound. It is successful, well, in a sense, anyway. He 
he was able to stop the bleeding and un and attach the undamaged organs and whatnot, but he isn't 100% still. He probably still needs to see a doctor. But Ed says, well, I don't have time to see a doctor. I need to go after Kimley, but he shortly passes out. The Chimera find the Lost Philosopher's Stone that Ed knocked out of Kimley's head hand earlier in the fight, and they pick it up. The two Chimera decide to defect because, you know, hey, Kimberly left them for dead, so why would they care what Kimberly wants? And they pick up Ed and try to find him a doctor. And our episode ends there. So I thought a lot happened. What about you? I didn't like this episode as much as like, like the last one. But we're getting more... I, we're not getting more backstory. Well, we got a little backstory about, I guess, what Hohenheim was doing his whole life. That he was in Jing for a little bit, teaching alka history. But I loved it. This episode, we get to learn more about Ed's philosophy on war. And kind of uh, how he's not, I guess, a soldier. That he he wants to help people. And he wants to, like... Because we just dealt with the Chimera soldiers a few episodes back. And we learned that they want to change and turn a new leaf and how Miles just kind of wants to shoot every shoot Kimberly and his two soldiers and how Ed doesn't want to do that. I like that. He still has humanity in him. Yeah, that is something that stands with Ed and Al throughout the whole series is that they just won't take another person's life regardless they think everybody deserves to live. We've seen that quite a few times, even with the, um, Slicer Brothers in Laboratory 5, an earlier episode, and also, of course, those other two Chimera from previous episode. So we see, yeah, that they just have the strict rule about taking people's lives, even if they are just terrible people. I liked that a lot. I also realized how I can never be a, an alchemist. When Ed saw that dynamite and the two Chimera saw it, they... They knew the whole breakdown of the dynamite when he turned it into ammonium. Ammonium? Yeah. Is that that's what he turned it into, yeah. right? Yeah. And yep. I would have not I do not I wonder if they just know the breakdown of of everything. Yeah, I think that is part of I mean, I guess you could say it's like with any job where you have to kind of know a lot of stuff, and I'm guessing alchemy, like one of the prerequisites to be a great alchemist is to understand all of the different chemistry and whatnot. And I guess the more you understand that stuff, the better an alchemist you are. It was a very, like, he grabbed an item, he knew everything off the top of his head. I was very impressed. Uh-huh. Well, that's why he's one of the youngest alchemists ever to exist, or, yeah, the youngest state alchemist. I also love the comedy relief we got in this episode, starting with Al's foot, like, finding Al in the snow. It was very hilarious seeing mm -hmm. him call for help. Yeah, and then I also liked when we saw the uh, fake Alphonse, the guy in the body of armor, and he tries to say, I'm coming, brother, but like in a really high-pitched voice to sound like Alphonse. Oh, yeah. And it makes you realize how many times Al says that. Like, how he's always, he's coming after Ed, or he's like, "Hey, wait up for me." It was, I, it was great. 
I loved it too. It was so awesome. Uh, I think, and I think that's kind of the first time we've ever seen him. I mean, granted, I'm sure he's used it other times, but this is the first time in the series that we see him use that approach of of uh, trickery, creating a fake Alphonse. Which they probably don't have to keep up anymore because, you know, Kimberly is on his own now and mm-hmm. the two soldiers are on their team. Though we don't know where they're going. They kind of just took him and they were like, we got to go find a doctor. So is it like their kind of doctor, like a doctor they know, or are they going to go to the military? My guess is they're just going to find some doctor nearby to treat them. I'm guessing they're going to try to avoid the military because they mentioned how Kimberly thinks they're dead now because of the, the mind collapse. So he, so it probably would make sense for them to keep a low profile. And now I can't find it in my notes, but our doctor friend, you know, he's reunited with his family. I wonder if he's going to come back. You know, we need a doctor. We know a doctor already. Is this a comeback? Could be. So I'm... That, That would be nice. So, I mean, I don't know if they would know of him, but if... Ed is like, Ed is awake and understanding. Then he would be able to be like, "Hey, I know a doctor." Oh, that's true. Though, given the given how far out they are, my guess is it's probably more likely that they're going to wind up running into Alphonse and them at that village because it sounds like that's the closest village to where they are. It's like I don't think they, I don't think they could take the. I don't think Ed would survive the whole train ride down to Central. Oh, I forgot that they were up in Briggs area in the north. Huh. Well, Winry is not going to be happy. Yeah, so it's most likely, if I had to guess, they're probably going to wind up at that same village because we know that area is pretty desolate, so I don't know that there's a ton of villages that they can wind up at, but who knows. Wasn't there a doctor that treated Kimberly just a couple episodes ago? Yeah, but I think he was a military doctor. Because I think he was like, at a, I mean, it could be the same doctor, I don't know. But I thought he was a military doctor. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to get, like, he is definitely not on, you know, the side of Ed and Al and everyone. He knows what's going on. So I wonder if we're going to go to him. Like, there's some kind of conflict there now, I feel. Yeah, and I don't think the Chimera in particular know that the brothers are like a sacrifice and they need to be kept alive and in one piece and everything. So it's not likely that they'll say, well, we can take him to the military doctor because they're not going to harm him because they're a sacrifice. They'll probably think that Ed's life is in danger as well. Yeah. And it definitely, that whole scene, it, I definitely did one of those, like I was shocked because it does that thing where it's zoomed in on Ed and you're like, oh, he survived Kimberly's explosion. Everything's good. And then it zooms out a little bit, and you're like, oh, everything is not good. There's a beam going through his chest. Yeah, and it's like, oh, man, he's not going to sur- Well, how is he going to survive this? Like, this is clearly a fatal wound, and the only thing that's keeping him alive is that the, the pipe going through him is, like, you know, is keeping the blood from spit- spilling out, but 
yeah, it's like, yeah, he's not, he, he, it's not good for him. And again, we get to see how great an alchemist he is, that he's just what he's seen in kind of his studies and what he's experienced in his journey so far. He's able to use himself as a philosopher, like his own, uh, was it his own energy, his own body's energy as a somewhat of a philosopher's stone to help heal his, not fix his organs, but like just close the wound. Yeah, get him to a point where he's no longer in danger of dying immediately. But yeah, he still needs to see a doctor to kind of get completely patched up. And yeah, he, I think the only, I mean, granted, it is downside. But as far as I could tell, the only downside to it was that he says that it's probably going to take a few years off of his life. Which, you know, I guess is, you know, having a few years taken off of the end of your life versus dying right there. Obviously, there is a, a difference. And I like what he 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 says a little thing then where he says like if this is the price for showing mercy then I guess I have to get used to paying it, which is great because it's like someone else could be like oh I shouldn't have let them live. If I would have just kind of gone with the plan, then I wouldn't be in this situation. But he's like, I believe in humanity so much, and I I want to see the good in people that I'm willing to to make these sacrifices. Yeah, it definitely stands out with his character. And it's great seeing at the end. I don't know if it's great because Al's going through something right now. But I like seeing how the brothers are truly connected. Like they said in uh, a few episodes back when Ed saw Al's body. And he were like, there, there is some kind of bond between him and his brother that are, that is keeping his soul on Earth. Exactly. There's some kind, because they're blood mixed, I think is what they're trying to insinuate was like, since they're blood mixed through doing all that stuff, uh, doing the alchemy experiment, they are forever tied together, which is pretty cool. Though, what horrible timing. Like, Al is already going through this crisis of he's feeling his body calling his soul back. And now he's like, this moment, it's just, it's a lot. Yes. And Al's probably going to be even more scared. Just because, like you mentioned, he already had these feelings and that he had that weird moment when he was out in the snow where he saw his body. So he's probably going to be very just self-conscious of the fact that he's probably, you know, not too far away from vanishing or his soul leaving the body of armor. I really hope, I mean, we still got, we're just at the start of season four and we got season five left. I hope we get some, like, Al gets some time of rest. Not, not like we take him out of action, but let's give him, like, some good story. Let him have some time where he can recoup. I feel this is very stressful for Al. I think so, too. Well, hopefully he gets it. I would feel bad if he does not. He definitely needs rest. And now, yeah, I, and maybe he'll get it in this uh, Ishvalan kind of a, a refuge place that Scar is taking them to. So we know that they're not going to go to Briggs because Al warned them. And then Scar knows this kind of refuge place that his people have set up. So they're heading that way. Huh. Yeah, I think that... Well, they're going to have to spend some time translating the stuff, so I guess that would give Al plenty of time to rest. 
I imagine they're not going to be able to translate it overnight. I do wonder if we're going to see any people that Scar knows. Possibly. I mean, for the, fa- the fact that he knew where that camp was kind of implies that he may have been there once before. Like, you know, we know that he's come up there at least. We know he's been in that area at least once before because he had to hide his brother's notes. So, yeah, he probably knows some people there. I, this is a great way. I th- these two episodes are a great way to start off the season. I'm very excited to see what what this uh, town's gonna be like, uh, how the Briggs people are gonna deal with everything. So I'm I'm ready to like hit the ground running again. I, I am looking forward to seeing what happens, how Ed survives, what happens when they get to the the uh, village, what kind of news they find in the notes, all of that. Yeah, and we're getting more of Hohenheim. So I'm I'm ready to see like how he's gonna fit more into this picture. Yes, Hohenheim is. At some point, they're all going to have to get together and meet each other and stuff. Oh, it's gonna be crazy too. Mustang's team and General Armstrong's team and Scar's team and Teacher and Ed and Al and Winry and Hohenheim and all these people. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to see. And I also want to know more about what they're trying to do, what the uh, what Father and the Monkey are planning. Uh, like, we, we already know that they are trying to... We already know that they're trying to create the, the transmutation circle and turn the country into Philosopher's Stone, but I, I want to know why. And after last episode, it's... I don't know. For at least for me, it's even more confusing. Like, you did it once, but I thought that was to get your body. So I don't understand why you're doing it again. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely something crazy there. So unless there's a like even bigger homunculus and an even bigger flask somewhere that they're like, we need a body for this guy. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're going to create more homunculi. Who knows? So, I... Oh, man. And then Salim is out there. There's so many, like, things that are happening. Like, oh, it's a lot. Well, hopefully we get to find more next episode. I mean, we obviously will, but we could talk about it on our next episode. Yeah, I can't wait. Cool. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us this week, as always. Can't wait to hear from you guys next week. Can't wait to we uh, can't wait to talk more about Full Metal Alchemist. And yeah, so uh, as always, I've been Jason. I'm Jimmy. Bye. Bye.